Hi everyone, today is February 14th, 2019. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Our guest today is John Sakata. Hi, John. Hi. His primary appointment is Professor of Biology at McGill University, where he's also a member of the Integrated Program in Neuroscience and the Center for Studies in Behavioral Neurobiology and also the very cool-sounding Center for Research in Brain Language and Music. Is that yes, right? spelled the T-R-E song. Got it. His lab investigates the mechanisms underlying the learning plasticity and control of communicative behaviors using songbirds as a model organism. And around the room, we've got uh, Todd Troyer. Hello. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Hi, guys. So, John, your lab is using many tools like immediate early gene immunohistochemistry, neurophysiological recordings, and manipulations of neural activity and neurochemistry to map the neural circuits that contribute to the social modulation of birdsong. You found that social interactions shape vocal learning as well as the structure and organization of the vocal signals that actually comprise the birdsong itself. What's interesting is that embedded in this idea of modulatory influences on the evolution of birdsong is this massive question about what aspects of songs are universal or biologically anchored uh, across individuals. And you've done some pretty definitive work on that recently. So um, can you say something about that and, and why it's particularly significant also? Well, I think that this sort of that research trajectory of looking at these these biases, these universals in, in birdsong, I think they have some nice parallels with, with music and with human speech. And so when I when I was reading the literature and speech and thinking about these universals of language, I'm thinking about, you know, universal grammar, for example, that being this contentious topic. And, um, and not to say that we can study universal grammar in birds, but it, it when I read that, I was always intrigued by it, but dissatisfied that we couldn't experimentally get at this in a way that we could in in other organisms. Now, I think that with these speech universals, it's you can we can study songbirds, especially songbirds that have these universals that are similar to the ones that you see in human speech. Um, you can use these songbirds as a way to really tease out these experiential components to these universals or these inherent biological predispositions. And so I was really fascinated by using songbirds to really tackle these kind of questions. And, and to promote songbirds as a way to sort of test these questions, these burning questions in linguistics or in psychology. So how is the, the human speech um, field in terms of looking at universals? Do people argue a lot about you know, articulators and centrally, and it's, it's kind of around, like I can, I can imagine, yeah. and, and, but I don't know. So is that, is that your impression? I think it's less contentious when you talk about universals and speech patterns, but when it comes to like these universals in language, the sort of semantics, and those kind of things are a lot more contentious. And so I sort of stay away from that because it's really hard to answer those questions in humans as well as any other animals. So the, I think for the universals in speech, I think people pretty readily accept that there are these motor biases and motor constraints and or sensory biases or constraints, and that can shape and influence the this dissemination of these types of patterns. So I, it seems less contentious to me, and I, therefore I think it's more interesting. Like it's it's easier to study without getting into a fight with somebody, and so I I liked tackling that aspect of it. So you said motor and sensory, but naively I have to be naive because I don't know anything about this. Okay. Uh, I would think that interpretational 
component would be the thing that would that would constrain language the most. So you have to speak in a way that allows the other person to pull out the phoneme. Yes. Interpret them and figure out what words are. And we all the time are listening to speakers whose speech pattern is difficult. Yes. And everybody uh, in the room will more or less agree, even if the speech pattern is caused by my accent, somebody else who has my accent mm -hmm. will still find it hard. Okay. Isn't that true? Yeah, I think there, I mean, certainly speech patterns can constrain comprehension. And so there is that, that certainly they go hand in hand. Um, but I guess that when, I think sometimes you can strip away that whole stored comprehension sign, just really isolate this stress patterns and maybe, you know, stress patterns in speech, um, that's something I focus on a lot is, is something that people who study prosody also think is not just important, is, is important for thinking about communicating information that's outside of words, right? So how I say a word, a sentence is equally as important as what, what the words are that comprise the sentence. And so people do think about stress patterns from that uh, prosodic and comprehensive perspective. But I, I think when it comes to universals and these patterns across these different languages and these, these sort of stress patterns, I think it, I, I don't hear the comprehension side as much. And maybe it's my bias on what literature I read. Um, but I do see a lot of people talking about uh, what is it about the articulatory system, what is it about the respiratory system that could cause these patterns of vocalizations in humans. So it's mostly about to be on the motor side. I think that's, again, this is maybe my own biased readings, but I've seen a number of people who, who really talk about the motor side. You know, the, the mo but the problem with just motor is that motor is not just motor because you hear yourself speak, right? So it's always sensory motor. And so there's this whole motor uh, hype, motor theory of speech perception, right? So it's, they go hand in hand, so it's really difficult to disentangle the motor versus sensory side, um, especially in humans. But, you know, I think we can come up with some sort of clever ways to do it in animals that, that might disentangle motor versus sensory components. So is there some of the simplest kinds of uh, commonalities that you mentioned, like the... Uh, longest sound goes at the end. Yes, yeah. So does that make sense from a motor point of view? I mean, can I explain that by some feature of my motor system? The way, so there's a, a paper that I quite like. Uh, Tierney is the first, uh, is the last name of the first author, and it's out of Ani Patel's lab. And they, they talk about these patterns in music um, as well as in speech. And part of it is you think about the way that we, like how we breathe across these sentences or for singing a phrase. We breathe at the beginning. We take the biggest breath at the beginning of the phrase, and we sort of sing the whole phrase. And the end, our voice sort of trails off at the end. And a lot of these, the the onsets of these syllables or vocalizations, you have these sort of sharp rise in, in in amplitude, and then it falls gradually after that. And if at the end you you can kind of sustain the decline a little bit longer, you tend to get this elongation at the end. And I think that is, I think I've for me, a fairly satisfying perspective on what could the motor contribution to this final utterance elongation. But there is a, now that you mentioned, there is a sort of a perceptual side where people think that, at least in linguistics, that this elongation might help to delineate the border of a phrase, the end of a phrase. So cognitively, you have this elongation, there's a pause, and that might help individuals. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So there is some of that to it. 
And so maybe it is a cognitive thing. Maybe. So that helps me understand why a bird would do the same thing. I mean, um, because otherwise I, I wouldn't understand why birds song would mm-hmm. have the same features as right. human speech. Yeah. In terms of the motor side. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's, I think that's where I think uh, in that paper, uh, it came out in 2011, is it really it studies both humans and birds. So it's like these music patterns in humans and these sort of um, note contours in birds. And you see this harmonic arch in birds. Um, and I think it's, to me, when they, they talk about this from a very motoric perspective, that's something about respiration, that all made sense to me. And I, I, I find that quite compelling. I think there's still need uh, more that needs to be done to really flesh out that hypothesis. But I think it's it's a nice start. The interpretational thing is, I mean, comprehension is very important in birds, sure. presumably, yep. because the bird song is just uh, the same every time. So the bird isn't actually communicating different things. Or are they? Well, I don't mean, so this is where prosody can come in. And especially, so in our birds, right, the zebra finches, they sing, they're like a robot. Right? They sing the same thing over and over. But there are other birds, like canaries, that have more complex sequences of sounds that they string together. And there are birds like sparrows and all different species of sparrows that sing different things. Depending, they have a larger repertoire. So, but within zebra finches, I mean, certainly they they will sing the same phrase over and over. But how they sing it, right, can vary from condition to condition. So if they're by themselves, they're this, they'll sing that phrase a little slower. They'll sing it. They'll be a little bit more variable in how they produce these vocalizations. But when they're singing to females, they're sort of they're faster. They're spot on. They hit that pitch. Their target pitch. Uh, much more accurately from rendition to rendition. So there is a little bit of that. Um, so if you only know one song, it has to be your sad song. Yeah. It has to be your happy song. Yeah, your exactly. Victory song. It has to, and you just have to sing it. Yes, it's a different way. way. With yeah, feeling. Way. Yeah, with more feeling. <laughs> yes, yeah. So if you're constrained, I mean, that's the way that you can deal yeah. with that, right? Uh, constraint. Yeah. So it seems like interesting from these kinds of uh, uh, theories of timing. And so forth. And actually, yeah. actually, how I got into the songbird field was, uh, I had a colleague was thinking about active auditory perception, and the combination of rhythmic chunking and uh, auditory perception. Because yeah. a lot of auditory signals, you have to anticipate the boundaries because what goes with what makes a big difference, yeah. and you use featural cues to anticipate the boundaries. Uh, but then you use temporal cues to segment them into the chunks of things that you do because mm-hmm. the auditory features are extended over some amount of time, right? So there's sweeps and other kinds of stuff of what's the beginning of a sweep and the end of a sweep and about something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of things about rhythmic uh, synchronization on a signal that you get in and then you know when the thing is going to go. Uh, and then... And whether there's theories of, you know, oscillatory rhythmic and training and all these kinds of things. But if you go and you get out of some regular rhythm and then you extend it, then you have to reset your your entrainment clock, right? It's, a, it's another kind of a temporal cue that you can't get on. Like if you're doing something very rhythmic and then you stop and pause, then you have to reset your rhythmic cue. And so this may be a way of, instead of something loud or start, this is the new thing, uh, temporally it's a temporal reset in terms of a temporal contrast. And whether you can get that, I mean, the song system doesn't really think about time mostly that way, although 
respiratory system and so on may be like that. Uh, but you also have these clocks, and people talk about them in HPC and so forth, and whether any of that tight synchronization is different, right. and it has to be in some ways at the end of phrases. I think in this whole idea of rhythm and entrainment makes sense, but there's certainly a sweet spot where there's some degree of arrhythmicity that's good, or at least variation in timing, right? So if you have someone that's really monotonous in terms of the rhythm, not just in tone, but in rhythm, then people tend to lose attention, right? They lose focus. But if there's some variability, then in, in you know, even slightly unpredictable variability, maybe it can be predictable variability too, but if there's some variability, then that sort of people, that whole breaking out of the system might be beneficial, right? To longer term enhancement, uh, attention or processing, as opposed to just having the same thing over and over. And this is where I think maybe the um, zebra finches might be sort of stuck because they have this sort of single motif over and over, but they can also introduce longer or shorter pauses between them, right? So maybe that's the way that they break that monotony and timing, that they just say, ba-da-da, 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 right? And then they break it up in ways that, it, that you're, you can't fully entrain to it, and so you don't habituate as, as readily. And sometimes they put other uh, calls and yes, stuff. Yes, yeah, they put blue symbols or Motifs. Then how long those go and yeah. whether they're the same or a different thing, I don't know. Uh, then we try to do that with uh, some kind of controlled way with tutoring uh, or even look at To those. see whether or not the calls in between the yeah, motifs matter. Yes, yeah. yeah, matter. I don't think people have systematically, I mean, I think... There's this guy, Ofer Chernikovsky in CUNY, um, and he has a recent paper where, I think his criticism now of the birdsong community is we're this motif-centric. We really think about this phrase, but there's all this stuff that goes on inside the song that are, is in part of the motif, like these calls that you produce, introductory notes that are before the, the motifs themselves. And then there's a whole repertoire of calls that we totally ignore a lot. I mean, recently, like Fred Tunison and other people have, have um, started to look at the repertoire of calls and Richard Hanloser and all these other people. So people have come around to thinking, oh, there's a whole ethology of songbirds that we have ignored as birdsong researchers, right? And so this idea of whether or not calls within songs really promote learning or, or somehow affect learning processes, I think is an open question. Likewise, other sensory input, because the speaker is a tutor yes. versus, yep. and, and you're actually looking at some of these other keys. Yes, that, yeah. So we think visual cues are really important as well, and I think this whole integration of visual and auditory cues really en enhances the learning process. Um, so when, when we look at live tutors, you can have a situation where um, a young developing individual is in, in one uh, cage, and you have an adult in the other cage, and that the, the young bird can see and hear the adult tutor. Uh, and that you, you have a lot, you have really good vocal learning there, so the, the pupil tends to produce an accurate copy of the tutor song. But if you just in introduce a thin visual barrier that the pupil cannot see through, so they can only interact with each other, they can't see each other, but they can acoustically interact with each other, the birds don't learn very well in that context. So there's something about this sort of visual and acoustic interaction that's important. Now, what I think is an open question is whether or not that sort of, that uh, the temporal coincidence of this, uh, the visual and the auditory inputs, right, to what degree there's multimodal integration, that's really important. I think that's something that we need to flesh out a little bit more. To think of. You know, is it the case that, as for human speech perception, right, if the you these the the side of the mouth moving, 
can can increase the processing uh, effectiveness of processing the speech sounds if they're concordant with each other. But if they're if they're shifted in time just a little bit, that benefits of the the visual signal really go away. In some cases, can impede it. So I think that's something that would be important to flesh out in, in song theory. And, and what about the idea of familiarity of a parent versus a, a, a third, a, a, another male? You know, as, as tutors, yeah. um, there's some. I don't know about familiarity per se. There are some social cues that they that people have found to be important. For example, um, there have been a couple studies that show that adult males that are the most aggressive towards juveniles tend to be copied the most. There are other studies where it says the the adult that feeds the juvenile the most is the most copied. I like that result better. It seems it seems like a nicer result. Um, and then there are other there are other instances where if you just take uh, like two one male that is uh, housed with the juvenile's mother versus a male that's housed with a different female, that those social cues of if you know your mother. And whoever is paired with your mother, you tend those individuals tend to copy those males more. If they're so, there's some familiarity with regard to mother, but I don't know a lot about father versus other things. And part of that is a is it a sensory thing? They're, they've already memorized their father song a little bit, or is it something about preferring familiar males? And I think that's I don't have a, the best answer for that. So the father song isn't really just one song because the father has a song when he's singing to a female, yep. another song when he's singing yep. to himself, yep. and the the learner is going to learn to have all those different songs too. Yeah. So, is there really more than one template that the that 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 the bird is learning, or well, I if, think they, if they had only heard the father sing when to himself, yeah. would they still make a version for a more crystallized version for a female spontaneously? Okay. So let me see if I understand your question. So when a juvenile is raised under normal circumstances, he sees his father sing what we call an undirected song, where he's not directing it towards any other individual, versus another context, he sees his father courting his mother, so it's a direct female-directed song. And maybe that, by the juvenile seeing that process of modulation from undirected song to directed song, he will therefore learn to, to modulate his song with that. We've actually looked at that in, in birds that have just been tutored non-socially, so if you have them... Uh, perch hop for a song. So they haven't heard, they've basically only heard one type of song. This is an undirected song. And if they, um, if you take those end of individuals and you as raise them until adulthood and you ask them, how do they sing the song when they sing to a female? They actually switch and they, they do the directed and they show direct differences between yeah. undirected song and directed song. So they don't need to learn that. Really. They don't need, there's no social learning of this modulation of song. But there is social learning of the structure of the song that they're going to sing. They know that when they sing a female, they, some, maybe it's just about arousal, but when they see a female, they clean up their song, they sing it faster, they sing it more, there's more, stere uh, there's more stereotypy in the acoustic structure. And so they have everything that they need to court a female. Is, is that a conversation during courtship? Do they modulate depending on how the female is reacting? Oh. Do they just move on or try the next one? Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's a conversation. There's certainly, yeah, yeah exactly. There, there's certainly feedback. There are some females, like females can display this copulation solicitation display, which is a really fast uh, quivering of the tail. And males love it. And so they're, they're going for that. And when they get that, they stop singing. And then they start to copy. They're going to try to copulate. So there is a little bit of that. We tend to see that females that are uh, um, moving around a lot when the male sings to them, 
the males sort of stop, doesn't sing as much. And but do they do they do they alter the cadences? Do they change any of the the variability in the song to try to appeal more or less to? Is that at the conversation level? I think generally they just try to sing the best song they can yeah, all the time. The yeah, <laughs> and it's possible that some things that females do on a moment by moment basis can change some things about the male song, but I don't think we have a good enough handle on that. And I think there are some people who are trying to study this in a more systematic way. Like there's some people doing like robots and stuff like that. And uh oh making a robotic yeah, yeah. Uh, robot birds, yeah. This is like the thing that was done with the stickleback fish. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, we tried to do some videos as well, but I think the birds are a little smarter than the sticklebacks. Stickleback they're like dummies, right? Uh -huh. like, yeah, instead of this like oblong dummy with a, a like a with a red belly. And that's a good enough signal to elicit aggression from a stickleback. And so the question is like, what is the minimum stimulus you need for the bird to, to think that that thing is a female? And then if it thinks that thing is a female, can you create, can you make that thing behave in a way that can, that males can use that as a reinforcement signals to change their songs in one way or other? Right? But I think there, is it a conversation? Probably. We just don't know. Like we haven't figured it out yet. You just have to rate the, the zebra finches on cartoons and have them watch a lot of cartoon, other birds hang yeah. out, and then they get used to it. And then they think it's. Yeah. Wait, people have done that with oh. like animation? <laughs> I mean, we're good. I mean, I think we, we, we are trying to do some things with videos as well, uh, but we don't have that whole visual interaction. It's a pretty boring video. It's like a, a, a still you. female. Huh? I mean, it was pretty cool to uh, like another <laughs> male finch, but. She's not doing too much. She's just sort of hanging out. And um, well, that's a little bit. So I had a couple questions on the tutoring part. Yeah. So with the the visual uh, occlusion, it's really hard to know uh, whether it's some like sensor like sensory fusion thing, yeah, yeah, like the right. visual thing, versus yeah. the social cues. May yeah. the social interaction may be way different yeah. uh, in I terms agree. of thinking about aggression and all this other kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, but do they? Does anybody done whether Juveniles learn uh, um, directed song better than undirected song. Uh, we haven't looked. So when we did our study, um, published a couple years ago, we tried to see whether or not. So we had these pairings. We had a, a pupil, a juvenile pupil, uh, next to an adult male, and the different males would sing different proportions of directed songs versus undirected songs, and we didn't see a correlation between how much directed song the tutor did uh, and how well the people learned the tutor song. And it looks like in these, you know, we thought there would be a correlation because the juveniles seem more attentive if the tutor is singing towards it. So it's, if it's singing a directed song towards the pupil, the pupils tend to stay still and quote unquote listen and we're not sure what they're doing. But in other contexts, when the bird, when the tutor is like kind of singing off to nowhere, the juvenile's kind of moving around, eating, preening, and doing other things. So it doesn't look like they're as attentive to when the tutor's when the tutor's singing to the juvenile. The juvenile seems more attentive um, than when the tutor is not singing to the juvenile. So we thought there'd be a relationship between that, but there there wasn't one. But that being said, we there could be a bigger study, and there, there might be something that pulls out of that. Because maybe maybe the directed song, right? It could be harder to learn because it's faster. Um, and 
maybe that is poses more of a challenge, but to adult females, they like that because it's like, oh, this guy's a pretty good singer. He he can sing pretty fast and and he can hit the hit the notes really well. So when you were sorry, if it's okay to yeah. change the subject, but at one point you were training birds with uh, with uh, syllables in different orders. Yes, and uh, and you were trying to cover every possible order of yeah. syllables. So. And and as I understand it, uh, maybe I got this uh, wrong, but the syllables are in one order, in one motif, and then another one in the next motif, and another one in the next motif. Yes. So what the what the juvenile was hearing was a song in which every motif was in a different sequence than yes. every other one. Yes. Yet, when the song that that juvenile settled on had a single order yes. that was repeated throughout the song. Right. Yep. Is that right? So, the, so one universal is, I repeat my motif. I don't. I'll pick one and repeat it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, is there? No, I, I don't. I wonder, like, yeah. where where does that come from? I mean, why couldn't the juvenile just learn the scrambled, like the the song that has a different order in each? Yeah. Order? I think that. I'm gonna guess that the auditory system probably encoded all those things, but they they just produced one of them, and that's pretty species typical for them. Like they sing this one motif, this phrase over and over. Um, I'm guessing that if you tutor different species with this kind of same paradigm, like for example, we also study Bengalese finches in our lab, and the Bengalese finches have a little bit more sequence variability. So I'm guessing if you could if you if we did this in Bengalese finches we'll see multiple types of phrases that they'll produce as opposed to the single one. And I just think it's a sort of what zebra finches do. They just sing this one thing over and over. And so that's kind of, I don't know if it's, I guess it's a universal in the sense that it's its pretty pervasive across all the individuals. Kind of thing is just the constraint, I think of it. Uh, sort of this so maybe it uh, has to do with the way they remember song, right? I mean, somewhere the song has to be stored in yeah. memory. I I'm I think this is where our future studies you know, what we hope to do is to see you know how the auditory system deals with this kind of sequence variability from from motif to motif. But it's pretty atypical to hear a song with four different motifs, but all the syllables are in different orders in those motifs. Um, and so one possibility is that the auditory system encodes all of those motifs because we give them to them in equal order, um, or it's that they selectively somehow the nervous system is already enhancing the representation of one of those sequences. And that sequence becomes the one that they eventually produce uh, as adults. So I think it's an, it's an open question, something that we're certainly really interested in, in how the auditory system deals with the sequence variability. Yeah, so you were primarily concerned with why did they pick that sequence instead of one of the others. Mm -hmm. uh, but what blew me away was that they, that they picked one They picked all. one, yeah. yeah. But the, other, the idea of the, the standard model, the dogma yeah. for... Production, right, is at least when they get stereotyped as an adult, they have this very stereotype sequence of activities, and there's real evidence for that in development. That it's like a real chain, it's like an overlearned thing, right? So you can't, you'd have a hard time reciting the alphabet in multiple orders and stuff because you'd go ABCD because you know the alphabet you know, from beginning to end, and you practice it over and over again. Uh, and so, the flexibility after you do that, that it's like one of these tasks that's completely overlearned and automated. So it's not like these elements and they can do them. Maybe as a juvenile when they're learning, it's right. easier. 
but it's notoriously hard. And but I it's the definition of the task that's key here. So to you, like the task is that one motif. But if the task was the whole song that was overlearned, then it could be as complex. Potentially, as, if they could learn something that that long as yeah. Warren Chuck. Uh, and this gets back to whether the there is a cue of uh, you know, there's some variability in the length of the motif. We've got to tell when the end of this motif is. Right? Yeah. Some birds have shorter motifs than ends. And when is the end of that chunk? And I don't know how much, I don't know, whether people have tried to to tutor them, not with the same elements in different orders, but can you, what, yeah. what happens when you tutor with them with a really, a, long song. a really long motif? Maybe yeah. it's just a memory capacity yep. thing, right? Like our working memory, and we could, they can remember a sequence of five syllables or right. something like that, and that's Seven it. Plus or minus yeah. two. Plus or minus two, right. yeah. plus some squawks and funny introductory notes. And stuff. <laughs> right. In the sensory phase, though, that's the tutoring phase. Yeah. There's no vocalization, but then there's this period of overlap where they start yes. babbling, yeah. and they're still getting auditory, randomized auditory. Yes. But you could imagine there'd be if they'd already picked something and anchored to it. Isn't there an interference happening there with this randomized stuff layered on top of what they're the template that they're trying? Or what, at what point do you think the template is chosen? Yeah, so that's what I don't know. And so we're just we just gave them a whole bunch of stimuli to learn from, and we don't know when they quote unquote picked what they're going to do. Um, we just try to give them as much this. So in this paradigm, they're hopping on a perch to hear a song, and it's not nearly as effective as having a live bird there. And so given those circumstances, we want to extend learning for this, the teaching, the learning, uh, the tutoring paradigm for as long as possible. So we did it for a month, in part because of previous studies showed that if you just did that for like a day or two, it's not sufficient to get good learning. And so we extended it. But it is possible at some point in time, if they do pick, I'm going to sing this phrase, and it's not clear whether they're actually going through that process, but if they do pick, I'm going to this phrase and maybe everything else is just noise and it could interfere with that. So now that you know, now that we have this finding, we could go back and see to what degree. Maybe if you uh, had fewer, just a couple weeks of tutoring, that that would lead to even better learning than another. But at the, for the time being, these guys learned. If you look at just how well they produced syllables, like individual syllables from the tutor song, they learn a little bit worse than. Birds that are just so you can tutor these birds with normal songs with like A B C D E A B C D E A B C D E in the same manner, and they'll learn about seventy to eighty percent of the syllables and maybe more. And our birds about that, a little bit lower, but they're not vastly different from birds that are tutored for a month with this linear normal zebra finch song. So I think that I guess the short of it is that I don't think that we cause too much interference with the one month long of tutoring. Uh, but I think we still need to design better experiments to really get at that question. That wasn't one thing we designed. So I tried uh, once for a while. I don't know how. We had, I had several students, one student in my lab and a couple like rotation undergraduate type students to try to tutor uh, with a live bird for yeah. a, a, a certain amount of time. And then when they're starting to learn that song, to switch the tutor yeah. uh, to a new bird. And see whether they would morph what they learned, or uh, uh, how they would adjust to a new song and switch their their learning midway of doing that. It was a mess. Like 
Uh, like some birds would would have little with with zebra finches, yeah, and they would learn a little bit. Some some would learn a little bit from that bird, and someone would uh, a, a section, a section. They'd make a hybrid song, but not very many. And the, how yeah. they did it, and whether that was because they were close enough to be able to do it and stuff. And the problem, I think, one of the main problems is we have this extended period of learning, but. We did continuous recordings. What happens is they have this babbling thing, and they go from babbling to that phrase in a pretty good copy with some variable in like five days or a week. And then oh, okay. they settle down and get less variable. So there's a huge jump that I think it's really settling in on the sequence and the mm -hmm. phrase and stuff. They're not good at it yet, but they're pretty much. And I think if you don't catch them right then or yeah. soon thereafter, they're much less plastic and when that happens it can be a little bit later in one bird. I see because your birds weren't doing it synchronously that you're Yeah, and we didn't you wasn't, it wasn't like I had enough dedicated students to listening every day. Oh, they're doing it. It's a good time to switch uh -huh. right now. <laughs> but there, so there's a huge amount of variability. Yeah, I think people have looked at that variability like so, as early as Lucy Eels in the early 80s had done that sort of sequential tutoring thing. But I think um, there are I think either studies out of Sharon Hobez's lab or from even out of Rich Mooney's lab. But it so if you do the sequential tutoring, you have their father as the first tutor, and they're raised with them for like 30 days, and then you give them like some degree of respite from any kind of adult song, and then you present it with the second tutor. I think what happened is that the more stereotyped the, the juvenile song was when the second tutor was introduced, the less he learned from that second tutor. So it's sort of, sort of consistent with what yeah. you would, you're, you're feeling from your studies. Right. And I think there is something that the motor system is getting devoted to this one pattern. You can think of this as a language acquisition as well, right? You, have, you, you dedicate more brain space to your native language, your first language, and then you sort of commit to that. And perceptually, you, you have a hard time hearing perceptual boundaries or phonemic boundaries in other languages. And I think the same is true is happening here with the motor system. Like they're, they're said, I'm all in now. Like this is where I'm going. You can't mess with me. Yeah. We have a couple of minutes left. Yeah. We're running out of time. Yeah. But um, can you say something about some of your work with, it seems like that type of thing would be right for um, modulating with circuit uh, modulators, like okay. phonemes or with, anyway, yeah. can you talk about Yeah, so, when we, we, this sort of started, uh, I mean, there's a long literature behind thinking about neuromodulators like dopamine and norepinephrine and thinking this, about sensory and sensory motor learning. Um, we were really interested in thinking about what are the neural mechanisms underlying the social enhancement of learning, the fact that these juvenile birds learn much better if they're socially tutored versus if they're passively tutored. And what we see is that in these dopaminergic and noradrenergic cells in the ventral tegmental area and the locus ceruleus, respectively, that there you see more immediate early gene expression in these dopaminergic and noradrenergic cells when they're being socially tutored than when they're passively tutored. And it's not just a social thing because if you expose them to an adult male that's not singing, you don't get these cells lighting up. And so we think that these there's more dopamine and or uh, norepinephrine being released when these birds are being socially tutored. And so what we're doing now is we're looking into, you know, where is this increased levels of norepinephrine or dopamine? Where is it acting to consolidate this learning process? So we have some preliminary data that we just presented last year at SFN 
that shows that if you infuse norepinephrine into the secondary, secondary auditory cortex, and you sort of trick the brain into thinking it's being socially tutored, and then you passively tutor that bird um, for five days, just it's like 30, three minutes of song per day for five days. And if you infuse norepinephrine, when you, you pair the norepinephrine infusion with those passive playbacks, you see levels of learning that are comparable to socially tutored birds. So you see it's as if the norepinephrine is really consolidating the sensory learning of that song. And then once they get this good memorization of the song, they can, they can thereby create sort of, uh, they can sing and reproduce that song in much, uh, much more accurately. So it is, it's ripe for that. And so we're really interested in thinking about you know, how neuromodulators can influence the, the strength of sensory learning. And we're also curious to see, you know, how these neuromodulators play a role in sensory motor learning. People think a lot about dopamine and sensory motor learning. And there are a lot of labs in the country um, doing the really elegant work in songbirds looking at how dopamine could, could play a role in plasticity, motor plasticity. Thank you for joining us. It was uh, my pleasure. And thanks, guys, for joining us for Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.